Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, as we begin, I want to start by kind of getting something off my chest. All right, there's something that I feel like I really need to address kind of publicly this morning. Um, if you were here a month ago, on April 25th, I got up here and preached a message. And in that message, we talked about hypocrisy, and we kind of talked about, we kind of used the analogy of being so close, to, looking like we're so close to God, but in reality being uh, so far away. And to illustrate this, um, we talked a little bit about space travel, and we talked about NASA, and specifically about Apollo 11. And we played a little NASA trivia, um, and I asked uh, Apollo 11, who was the first man to walk on the moon? Everyone said Neil Armstrong. I asked who was the second? Everyone said Buzz Aldrin. And then I asked who was the third guy on the mission? Anybody remember his name? Patrick? No. <laughs> um, no. Oh, come on. You failed your quiz. Michael Collins. Michael Collins was the third guy on the mission. And his whole story was that he was um, the, the, the third on the mission. He went, but he stayed behind in the spaceship while the other two went down to the moon and walked on the moon. He was the one that stayed behind and stayed in orbit. So he never actually walked on the moon. And if I'm being honest, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I kind of made him sound like a kind of a failure. Um, I said, you know, I said things like he was so close to, to hitting this ultimate goal, to reaching this goal that I'm sure he worked his whole life for, and I'm sure it burned him up inside that he never made it, and kind of didn't paint him in the best light. Uh, well, we all went on with our days, went out with the message, went out with our weeks. That was on Sunday, April 25th, and then three days later on April 28th, I get a text with this article. He died three days after I talked about him. Like... I, look, he's not the most famous person in the world. I'm sure churches aren't talking about him every Sunday, but the one week that I talk about him, three days later, he passes away. Uh, and so I felt awful that I, I did not give him the credit that is due, and then three days later, he passed away. So this morning, I wanted to clear the air a little bit on our good buddy, Michael Collins. And I wanted to give you some of his actual accomplishments so that we can kind of see him in a little bit of a better light. Because, well, it's true, he never did walk on the moon. He did a lot of other stuff. So let me fill you in on our good buddy, Michael. Did you know Mr. Collins was in the Air Force and trained as a fighter pilot? That he was one of only 24 people that have ever flown to the moon. He was the first person in history to perform more than one spacewalk. Uh, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1969, the Congressional Gold Medal in 2011. He's been inducted into four different halls of fame. He has an asteroid named after him and a lunar crater named after him. Uh, he's been in movies, he's been portrayed in movies, he's on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Multiple bands, including Jethro Tull, have written songs specifically about him and how uh, important he was to the mission, even though he never got the fame that the others did. He's written four books, he's won plenty of other awards, plenty of medals, plenty of honors, all this, not to mention astronaut, lived till he's 90 years old, this super accomplished life, and then three days before he passes away, he gets some nobody in Raleigh getting up and being like, what a loser, he never even walked on the moon, can you believe it? So I, I just want to clear the air a little bit. American hero, nobody. He wins, all right, he wins. He, he wins in life. Um, but, uh, all right, I don't know what we're clapping for, but let's do it. Um, but I, uh, I bring that up partially just to clear my conscience a little bit and get that out of my chest, but also because if you were here last month, all you knew about him was what I told you. If you never heard about him before, all you knew was what I told you and that he never walked on the moon and that he kind of missed the mark a little bit, but you would have had no idea about these other accomplishments of his and you would have kind of just seen him as a little bit of a failure. 
And, and this is the question I want us to be asking ourselves this morning. It's what are you known for? We knew Michael as this specific thing because that's what I communicated to you, but what do people know you for? If, when people think of you, when people think of your name, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And as followers of Jesus, what should we be known for? What are you known for? Uh, well, if I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at New City, and today we're going to be continuing our look through the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. So if you've got a Bible with you, you're welcome to get it out with me. We're going to be in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in one of the seatbacks around you, and if you don't own a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that one home as our gift to you today. Uh, but in this uh, series, we've been going verse by verse through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and what this is, is this is the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. So if we were to jump over to Acts, to the book of Acts, we kind of see Paul's missionary journey laid out for us. And what we would find in Acts chapter 17 is that Paul spent a little bit of time in Thessalonica, that um, after that he went to, or, uh, he was driven out of Thessalonica by this mob of kind of angry Jews. And, and there he went to Athens, and in Athens is where he writes the letter back to, um, Thess uh, to Thessalonica, to the people of Thessalonians. And so um, we can see that he was only there for this short time, but we're going to pick up reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. And it says this, it says, But as for us, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and wanted to, see, or to return and see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at this coming? Is it not you? Indeed you are our glory and joy. So even though, even though Paul was only there for a short time, we can see in this letter how much he loved and cared for the Thessalonians. And we can see that in the, in the phrasing he uses. For example, when he says things like, we are forced to leave you, the Greek that he's using here, it's, it's, the, it's the words you'd use to describe a child being abducted from their parents. So in other words, he's not just saying, we miss you, wish we could be there, hope everything's okay, but you can see how much it pained him that he couldn't be there with them. And then we see in verse 18, uh, Paul says that we wanted to come back, but Satan hindered us. And, and the word he's using here, that when he says Satan hindered them, it's a military term for a technique of sabotaging a pathway so your enemy can't get through. So I think it's really interesting here that Paul is able to discern that the reason they can't go back, the reason they're being hindered from going back, is from Satan, not from God. That he's able to discern that it's not God saying, I don't want you to go back, but it's Satan creating this hindrance. See, I wonder how many times in our lives... Satan has put up a roadblock or created a hindrance, and we chalk it up to, it must just not be God's plan, right? Have you ever had a job where things get really difficult, a relationship where things get difficult, and you kind of think, well, this just, it must not be God's plan for me to continue doing this. God, if it's your plan, give me a sign, and then things get more difficult. Well, it must just not be part of God's plan. See, I wonder how many times Satan has actually been the one to block our way or put up a roadblock. Meanwhile, God's saying, no, just keep pushing through. Just keep pushing through. This is temporary. See, when Satan blocks our way, do we relent or do we persevere? See, I wonder how different Paul's missionary journey would have looked like if he would have, at these um, hindrances or roadblocks, he would have just relented. Well, guess it's not part of God's plan. Guess I'll go back to making tents. Guess this isn't my thing. But we can see that even though he was faced with some difficulties and hindrances, that he continued in his missionary journey. In fact, we can see this in his, uh, this, uh, a timeline of this little kind of short period of his missionary journey. We can see this. He, we can see that he was in Thessalonica, 
And he was forced to leave by this uh, kind of mob of, of Jews that had become angry and jealous with him. And then from there, he went to Berea and then to Athens. And in Athens, in Acts 17, that's where we get his, his Areopagus address. That's his uh, most well-recorded and famous sermon that he delivered. Then from Athens, we see in Acts 18 that he then goes to Corinth. And he starts the, the church in Corinth. And ultimately, that's where we get the books of uh, First and Second Corinthians. And then in Acts 19, we see then he goes to Ephesus, and that's ultimately where we get the book of Ephesians. And this is what I want us to see here. It's that Satan can only stop you if you let him. That Satan can only stop you if you let him. He can put up roadblocks. He can put up hindrances. He can make things really difficult. But he can only stop you from accomplishing God's will if you let him. See, this is why prayer for wisdom and discernment is so important. I can guarantee that Paul was in, a, in, in such a relationship with God that he was constantly asking for his wisdom and his discernment. And that's how he was able to discern that this was Satan creating these roadblocks and not God. So let's continue reading in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. It says, Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to, be, that we were going to experience affliction, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. So we can see in this section Paul's love and care for the Thessalonians playing out. In other words, it, he, couldn't, he could no longer just sit on the sidelines and hope that they were doing okay, but he had to get up and take some action. So he sent Timothy, since he wasn't able to go back, he sent Timothy to not just check on them, not just say, hope you're doing okay, but to minister to them and care for them spiritually. In fact, we see in um, verse 3, Paul says that he's sending Timothy to strengthen you in your faith so you won't be shaken. So what he's saying here is he, he's basically saying that, hey, life is going to get difficult. You're going to experience affliction. You're going to experience persecution. And look, it's going to be real, it's going to look real good to walk away from your faith. It's going to look real good to walk away from your faith. And, and what he's saying, don't be seduced by an easier life apart from God. So if we, if we take a step back from the book of Thessalonians, and we look at our current lives today in Raleigh in 2021, what does persecution look like for us today? Most of us are probably never going to experience a physical persecution. Most of us probably aren't going to be beaten or killed for our faith, probably. But today we can face more of a social persecution, right? Which I get can be kind of weird to use the, word, use the term persecution when talking about kind of more social difficulties and difficulties in relationships and things like that. But regardless of the level of severity, regardless of how difficult it is, we can see from Scripture that we should expect persecution. We should expect things to get difficult when following, uh, when following Jesus, in fact, in 2 Timothy, which you can already see, it says this, it says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a maybe, it's not a might happen, thing. all that want to live a godly life will be persecuted. In fact, it makes me think of this. When I was in high school, I applied for a job at Target. Um, lived back in Michigan, applied for a job at our local Target, and it was just a job of stocking shelves, nothing, nothing fancy. And I had a buddy that managed the department that I was applying for. And so he basically told me, we need people, you need work, just come apply, I'll make sure you get an interview, and as long as you don't blow the interview, the job is yours. Perfect, I can do this. So I apply, I get the interview, I sit down at the interview, and she asks me, 
why, do you, why did you apply for this position specifically? Why this, out of everything we're hiring for, why this specific, uh, position specifically? To which I told her, now, have some grace. I was in high school, all right? So not the wisest answer. But so what I told her, well, I'm not that much of a people person. Uh, I'm not that good with people. I don't really like to talk to people. And so a job where I'm just on my own, doing my own thing, I think I would be real good at that. <laughs> to which she gave me this kind of confused look. And she was like, well, you know that in this job, you have to talk to everybody you see. It's like, what? <laughs> She's like, if you're working in an aisle, anyone that walks down that aisle, you have to drop what you're doing and approach them and ask how you can help. You actually have to talk to every single person you come in contact with. Oh. So I tried to backpedal, right? It's like, well, it's not that I'm not good with people. Like, I love people. I just, that's not what I meant. But needless to say, I did not get this job. This job that all I had to do is show up to the interview and breathe. I couldn't get it. Didn't get it. But why didn't I get the job that was basically guaranteed for me? Why didn't I get it? Well, it's because I never read the job description. It's because I didn't know what this job entailed. I thought I knew, but I never took the time to figure out what this job actually entailed. I never read the job description. This is what I want to see here. It's this. It's that persecution is part of the job. That persecution is part of the job. It's part of our job description as followers of Jesus. See, here's the thing. People don't like to be told what to do. People don't like to feel restricted. People don't like to feel like um, there are certain maybe universal things that are right and wrong and that it's not up to the individual. And true or not, that's the view that the world has of Christianity. So it's natural for the world to not like you as a follower of Jesus. Now hear me when I say this, this is not a woe is us moment. In other words, I'm not saying, oh man, it's so tough to follow Jesus. If you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, to feel bad for us because we have it so hard. It's so tough to follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is you need to expect it, that it's part of following Jesus, so it shouldn't take us by surprise when we experience some sort of pushback or some sort of difficulty when following Jesus. In fact, if, if Paul were to write a letter to the, to the church in Raleigh, if we had the, the book of the Raleighans. Is that what you call people from Raleigh? I don't know what you call them. If we had the book of the people from Raleigh, to the people in Raleigh, I don't think, I could be wrong, this is my own opinion, I don't think Paul would write a letter saying things like, you don't know how good you have it. Can, you think that's persecution? You, you know what we went through in my day? We were killed. Like, you, do you have any clue how easy you have it? I don't think, I don't think that's what he would say. But what I could see him saying is something along the lines of, why are you so quick to hide your faith when you experience any sort of pushback? Why are you so quick to run away from your faith? Or why are you so afraid of people knowing that you're a follower of Jesus in fear of things getting a little awkward or difficult? You know, did you not read the job description? This is part of the job. Did you not know what this was when you signed up for it? It reminds me of my first year of college. Um, I took a philosophy class. And our, our professor was an atheist, but he was, he, and to my knowledge, to what I remember, he never talked down about Christianity, but he did let us know that he was an atheist. And I remember one day we were sitting in class, uh, class hadn't started yet, people were just kind of filtering in. And I was sitting there, and he was off in the corner having a private conversation with somebody, he kind of backs away from that person and gets everyone's attention that was in the room at that time. He says, hey, do me a favor, if you're a Christian, raise your hand. What? 
man, my hand's right in my pocket. Are you kidding me? Like, that's not public information. We don't, we don't talk about that in the outside of church. Are you joking? And I remember I sat there and did nothing. Now, I told myself I was a follower of Jesus. I claimed to be a follower of Jesus. But asking in a public setting? No way. Are you kidding me? But you know what happened? A handful of people raised their hand, more than I thought. Looked around the room, said, okay. Went back to his conversation. Nothing happened. Nobody got ridiculed. Nobody got kicked out of class. Nobody was made to feel dumb. Nothing happened. But that little bit of fear that I might be singled out or pointed out as someone that's different than everybody else, man, that was enough. I was, I was more than willing to hide my faith. More than willing. Didn't even have to think about it. Nope. Mm-mm. And you know what, later on that day and the, you know, the coming days after that, I thought about it and I justified it. You know, I'm an introvert. I didn't want the attention to be on me. As followers of Jesus, the attention should be on him, not on us. So that's why I didn't raise my hand. You know, I'm just doing my duty. But no, I was so concerned with avoiding any sort of social persecution, so to speak, that I was more than willing to hide my faith. And this is what I want us to ask ourselves. It's this, it's, does a lack of persecution indicate a lack of integrity? Now, I'm not saying it does in every situation, but I think it's important to ask, does a lack of persecution in my life indicate a lack of integrity? Because I'll tell you what it did for me. 100% did for me. So if you're sitting here today as a follower of Jesus and thinking, you know, persecution, life's always been pretty easy. Like, I've never experienced any pushback or any difficulty following Jesus. I'm not really sure what you're talking about. I think the first question to ask is, is the reason for that because of a lack of integrity? Do people know that you follow Jesus? Do people have any clue? The people you spend your time with, do they know that there's something different about you? See, I think if you've never faced any sort of persecution, so to speak, it can be for, for most likely one of two reasons, either a lack of integrity like it was for me, or because we can surround ourselves with all like-minded people who all think the exact same way we do, believe the exact same way we do, just uh, reaffirm everything we already believe, and we never venture outside of our little bubble to talk to someone who would even disagree with us. So if we never communicate with anyone who believes any different with us than us, then of course they're not going to experience any pushback. You know, if you look around the, the people that you spend all your time with and everyone thinks like you, talks like you, acts like you, looks like you, votes like you, believes like you, well then, of course, we're not going to experience any pushback. You know, if you, have, if you have this little group of friends and as soon as someone starts to maybe disagree with something, then uh, that relationship's getting a little tense. I think I need to set some boundaries. I think that's getting a little toxic. So I'm going to go over here and spend time with people that all affirm what I already believe because that makes me feel so good. Mm. See, if we don't spend time with anyone who disagrees with us in the slightest bits... We're not going to experience any pushback. But if we're following Jesus the way that we're told to in here, where we're, where we're told to make our faith evident, where we're told to live out our faith, to spend time with people who may disagree with us, then it's inevitable that we're going to face some persecution. But the good news is that while persecution is inevitable, we know that it's temporary. We know that it's temporary. In other words, if you're, follow, if you're not a follower of Jesus here, right now you might be like, well, this sounds terrible. Why would I sign up for that? Persecution? You kidding me? No, thanks. But we know that it's temporary. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. I don't know if you know anything about Paul's story, 
but momentary light affliction? Are you kidding me? Like Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was beaten. Paul was in prison. Paul went through things that most of us will probably never be able to imagine what he went through. And he's saying, it's a momentary light affliction. It's like I stubbed my toe. It stinks for a sec, but in the grand scheme of things, who cares? See, imagine having that mindset when it comes to persecution, that it, you know, it's not going to be fun in the moment, but in the long run, we got glory ahead of us in e- for eternity. This is just a blip. Like, this is nothing compared to eternity. So if we keep our eyes on what's coming, then persecution is not really that big a deal. See, Paul knew then, and is telling us that even though persecution and affliction will be difficult, it's nothing compared to what's coming. And if we continue reading in 1 Thessalonians, we see Timothy's report back to Paul. Paul sent Timothy to check on them and his report back to Paul. And we see that they knew this as well, that they're continuing to be faithful even throughout difficulties and persecution. So let's pick back up in verse 6 of chapter 3. It says this, it says, But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for the joy that we experienced before our God because of you, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith? And then Paul ends with a prayer for the Thessalonians. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So what can we take away from this section of Paul's letter? I think a couple things. I think we can see Paul talking to the Thessalonians almost as if they were his children. And we can see it's clear how much he loved and cared for them. And we can see that he knew he had an impact on their faith. And he knew that God had entrusted them to him. And this is what I want us to ask ourselves here. And that's this. It's who has God entrusted to you? Who has God entrusted to you? Whose faith do you have an impact on? Now, if you you got our uh, little notes handout when you walked in the door, the little fill in the blank notes, you'll notice next to this question, there's a blank. And the reason for that is this is not meant to be a rhetorical question. This is not meant to be a good question. I'll think about that. But write a name down. Who has God entrusted to you? Maybe a spouse or kids or family member or a student or someone you're mentoring or a friend or someone who looks up to you and you may not even realize, but whose faith do you have an impact on? And what Paul is saying is take this relationship seriously. Take this relationship seriously. We can see that Paul did take this seriously and that he didn't shy away from showing affection, which I get can make some of us a little uncomfortable. I get showing love to people that may be outside your family can make some of us a little uncomfortable. And look, I'm the prime example of this. I'm, it's, it's no secret I'm not the most affectionate person in the world. Like, look, I love to hug my wife. I love, love to hug my son. But past that, I love you. Just stay over there. You know, like, I'm, just, I'm, not the, I'm not the biggest hugger in the world. But regardless of if, it's, if I'm comfortable with it, I'm not exempt from it. That, I, that regardless of if, if showing love is something that comes easy to us, because I get it comes more easy to some than others, this is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what I want to see here. It's this, is that faith cannot exist without love. That a, a relationship with Jesus cannot exist without love. In fact, I would say that if, if someone claims to follow Jesus but doesn't have love for people, I would say that they fundamentally misunderstand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. I would say they've, they're, they're so far off the mark 
that they're not even in the same galaxy, that they're so far off of understanding Jesus' love for them if they don't show love for other people. See, it doesn't matter your personality type. I'm an introvert. I get it's, it's easier for me to hide my emotion. I'm not as comfortable sharing my emotion as other people. It doesn't make me exempt from this. If you're an extrovert, you may wear your emotions on your sleeve a little more. You may be a little more comfortable showing kind of an outward face of, of love or happiness, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what you mean on the inside. That doesn't make you exempt from this. It doesn't matter your strengths. It doesn't matter your weaknesses. It doesn't matter your Enneagram type. It's, it's required to have a relationship with Jesus. Faith cannot exist without love. See, what we just read, Paul said, may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. It's interesting that Paul says increase in love, not just for each other, but for everyone. And who does everyone entail? It, every, everyone, right? That's a, that's a tough question. That's a diff, difficult one. Everyone. See, we talk about loving everybody. That sounds great. Love everybody. We all know that's the right thing to do. But when we meet someone who we completely disagree with, are we more concerned with showing them love or showing them that we disagree with them? What's our go-to? What's our first reaction? Is it show them that we love them or show them, well, this is what I believe and this is where you're wrong? And this is what I want to see here. It's this. It's, it's, it's better to be loving than to be right. It's better to be loving than to be right. It doesn't, this doesn't mean you can't help identify sin in a relationship when it's appropriate. This doesn't mean that we just sit back on the sidelines and, hey, you do you, I do me. You know, we can just, all, everyone's perfectly fine. But are we more concerned with loving someone or being right? And I'll give you a couple examples. What happens when we meet someone who has different political views than we do? Are we more concerned with showing them love or letting them know where we disagree? What's our go-to? What's our first reaction? They need to know my stance on this issue or they need to know they're loved. What happens if you meet someone that's gay? What's your first response? I need to make sure that they know that they're loved or I need to make sure they know I disagree with them. What's our go-to? Better yet, what happens if your kids see someone in a same-sex relationship? What's their first thought? Man, when I get home, they need to, I need to sit them down. They need to know what they saw today was a sin. They need to know we disagree with that. Or is your first thought, man, when I get home, they need to know that we love people even if we don't agree. See, what's our go-to? What's our first reaction? See, loving someone doesn't mean we sit on the sidelines and do nothing. Like I said, this isn't a, hey, you do you, we all just exist together, everyone can just do their own thing and we're all happy. That's not what it means. In fact, loving means the exact opposite, and that's the main idea I want us to walk away with today, and that's this, is that love isn't passive, it's active. Love isn't passive. Love doesn't just sit around and do nothing. Love gets up and does something. See, following Jesus and being loving doesn't mean that we just sit on the sidelines, everyone just does their own thing, but it means that we get up and act and we do something. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is... The, 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 the love verses that everyone knows and loves, if you've been to a wedding, you've heard them before. We can, I think we can ignore the three verses that come before that. And they're so profound. It says this starting in verse one. It says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love... I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, love isn't passive. Love 
does something. Love gets up and acts. You know, right now we're collecting cans for the Raleigh Dream Center. We're uh, collecting them through next week. So if you haven't brought some in, bring some in. But a few weeks ago, Jeremy, who runs the entire Dream Center, was here and kind of told his story. And if you remember his story, this whole thing started because he was working at a church and a woman approached him and said that she was, look, it looked like she was going to be facing homelessness. And he had no background in, in any of this, had no idea how to help. But you know what he did? He got up and did something and he brought groceries to her house that day. Now that didn't fix all her problems, all her problems. That didn't, that didn't solve all of her issues, but it was something. See, he didn't sit around and say, I can't solve all her problems, so it's probably better if I just don't get involved. He acted. And that's what love is. And, and this whole organization that has helped thousands of people right here in our hometown all came because one person said yes. One person acted when he saw someone in need. See, is our first response when we see someone in need to act or to sit back? Do we do something about it? Or do we give them the old Christian response? I'll pray for you. Meanwhile, let's be honest. I'll pray for you. That was the prayer. Oh, I'll pray for you. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> or are we doing something? Are we doing something physical to help a situation? Obviously, I'm not, down, I'm not uh, downplaying the importance of prayer, but as believers, we're supposed to love by doing something. So like Jeremy did with, with starting the Raleigh Dream Center, he's helping so many people right here in our county. See, what happens when we hear about injustices? What happens when we hear about people uh, being oppressed, when we hear about people that need help? What happens when we hear about kids in foster care? Do we do something? Or do we say, oh, it's so sad. I'm glad someone's helping. Or do we get up and do something? You know, one of the biggest lies I've ever heard in foster care, and it's been told to us many times, is, oh, it takes a special kind of person to do what you're doing. Let me tell you what, that is the biggest lie I've ever heard. It doesn't take a special kind of person to help. It takes a follower of Jesus. So are we sitting around and just, I'm glad someone's doing something. Are we sitting around or are we actually getting up and helping? Do we, when someone is in need, do we think of all the reasons we can't help? Uh, I got a busy schedule. Uh, I just don't know if that'll work with what I'm doing. Or do we think of all the reasons we can help? What's our go-to? What happens when we see someone in the church who needs help? Do we hope that someone else will handle it or do we get up and do it ourselves? So I asked at the beginning of this message, what are you known for? What do people know you for? When people think of you, what do they think of? When someone thinks of your name, do they think, oh, Republican, Democrat? Oh, they're, they're really pro this or anti this. They have a really strong stance on this issue. Or do they think, man, that's someone who loves. That's someone who loves people that disagree with them. That's someone who has their beliefs, who has their stances, but that it's most important that they love people even though they disagree with them. See, Jesus was the furthest thing from passive, but he, was the, he, he committed the greatest act of love that's ever been committed here on this earth. You know, God sent his son to die for you and me in, in the greatest act of love that's ever been committed. And you know what one of the final thoughts he had as he was dying on the cross? One of the final things he said is, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. One of the last things that he said, one of his last thoughts were, God, forgive the people that are murdering me. See, that's love that I don't even understand. That's love that's so far beyond my comprehension. That's, so, that's love that's so far beyond anything I'm capable of. But here's the thing, Jesus' love isn't just reserved for those who act a certain way. It's not just reserved for those who love him back. 
It's not just reserved for those who do certain things, but his love is freely given to everybody, and all he asks for you to do is accept it. So if you're sitting here today, and you've never taken that first step with Jesus, you've never experienced his love, you've never, you've never looked at what it means to accept his love, I want to encourage you this morning to stop running. I want to encourage you this morning to take that first step with Jesus, to not take this message and say, oh, that's a good thing to think about. I'm gonna, I'll go home and think about it and you know, we'll see what happens. But to take that first step today, this morning, right here. In fact, we're gonna end this message a little bit different. Generally, what we'll do at the end of a message is we'll have a time of confession where we kind of uh, play some music, have a little bit of silence and give us some time to go before the Lord and confess where we've fallen short and confess sin. But we're going to end things a little bit different today. So I'm going to invite the band up. You guys can come up as we uh, close today. And I want to kind of open it up and give you a chance, if you've never taken that first step with Jesus, to take that first step with him this morning. That if you've never actually experienced what it means to accept Jesus' love and become a follower of Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to take that first step with me today. So in a few minutes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And I encourage you, if you've never taken those first steps, to pray with me. Now, just because what I say, there's no magical combination of words that as long as you say things in the same order I'm saying them, then that's all that matters. But take the concepts, the thoughts that I'm praying, and make those words yours. Pray this to God. Pray that you would, uh, pray that you would accept his love and that he would welcome you into his family. Because let me tell you, it doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your present. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what's happened to you or what you've done. God has opened the doors and says, just come join my family. But all you have to do is take that first step. So in a minute, I'm going to pray, and I encourage you to pray with me if you've never taken that first step with Jesus. But if you have, if you are a follower of Jesus, then I encourage you to take this time to yourself to pray and ask God to grow you in love. Ask that we would be a community here at New City that loves in ways that seems weird, that loves in ways that people on the outside look at us and think that's that's almost uncomfortable how much that community loves. That if someone's new, they walk in the doors for the first time, they would feel that they're loved from the moment they walk in the door to the minute that they leave. That we would have an impact in the community, that we wouldn't just be people that we love each other, that we love each other here in, the, in these doors, but as we go out, nobody else sees it. But that we would go out into the community and show that we love and that we're people who follow Jesus and uh, display his love. But if you've never taken that first step with Jesus... Now I want to invite you to pray with me, to pray for uh, God to come into your life and to change your life. So bow your heads with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I've fallen short. I acknowledge that I've tried to do it my own way for a really long time and that my own way doesn't work. God, I ask you to come into my life. I, I want to accept your love that's freely given. God, I acknowledge that you came, you sent your son, Jesus, to die and to take the place for my sin, to die a death so I ultimately wouldn't have to. To take the, to take the brunt of my sin so that I wouldn't have to face punishment for it. And God, I thank you that, that Jesus then rose three days later, symbolizing that I can have eternal life as well. God, I don't want to do it on my own anymore. I don't want to do things my own way, but I want to live for you. God, help me to live for you. God, I pray that we would be a community that loves, that we would be people 
that loves, that loves in a way that is, it's so foreign to the world because, because love isn't something that's common. God, I pray that we can display your love, that me, you, you would help me as Brian grow in love for you and for other people around me, even if I disagree with them. God, we thank you for the gift that you've given us of your son. We thank you for all the things that you've done here in your city and in our own lives personally. And God, we love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.